I'm reading from Micah 2, Reason for Judgment. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out, because it is in their power to do it. They cover fields, they covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them. They defraud a man of his home, a fellow man of his inheritance. Therefore, the Lord says, I am planning disaster against this people, from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly, for it will be a time of calamity. In that day, men will ridicule you. They will taunt you with this mournful song. We are utterly ruined. My people's possessions is divided up. He, he takes it from me. He assigns our fields to traitors. Therefore, you will have no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by lot. Do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should it be said, O house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord angry? Does he do such things? Do not my words do good to him whose ways are upright? Lately, my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without a care, like men returning from battle. You drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. Get up, go away, for this is not your resting place, because it is defiled. It is ruined beyond all remedy. If a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, he would be just the prophet for this people. I will surely gather all of you, O Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. One who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. The word of the Lord. So we're in the, the book of Micah. Uh, it's a seven-week series. It's not a book that we normally read, uh, normally study. A minor prophet uh, and so it's a good opportunity to kind of dive together into an area in God's word that we might not normally go. So let me say a prayer for us, and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all parts of the Bible, uh, even parts we don't normally uh, read. Would you just under, uh, open up our understanding of this passage? Uh, help us get it. Help us get what you want us to get. Uh, and uh, may we love you more because of it. Uh, it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we're in this series, God of Justice, looking at the book of Micah, but I actually wanted to take a moment and connect it to something maybe we're a little bit more familiar with in the New Testament. So just by asking the question, what is the greatest commandment? Maybe some of you have heard of the greatest commandment in the Bible. So maybe some of you know, maybe some of you don't know, but the greatest commandment in the Bible, kind of the first commandment, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. We find that in Matthew chapter 22. And in this passage, there's also the second greatest commandment listed. So there's the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment. So the first one's love God, and the second one is love your neighbor as yourself. So what are the greatest commandments? Love God and love others. Now last week we talked about idolatry. Now, idolatry is not something we talk about very often, 
But I think one of the ways that we can define idolatry is just breaking the first commandment, that, that greatest commandment, not loving God first, not loving God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. So that's what idolatry is. And what is injustice? We're talking about justice in this series. I think injustice is simply breaking the second greatest commandment, not loving your neighbor as they deserve, not treating others with the respect and, and esteem that God has bestowed upon them, not treating them justly, not loving your neighbor. So at the end of the day, <laughs> this sermon series hopefully is just teaching us to love God first and love our neighbor more to not have idols, to not commit injustices, but to truly do what the Bible says. Now, last week I took a little survey of the congregation, and you wrote on pieces of paper, you answered two questions. Uh, And if you missed this, I'm sorry, but I'll be presenting some of the results tonight. And the first question was, what is uh, is an idol our culture worships? What is an idol our culture worships? I wanted to see what you think. Uh, kind of the things that we worship in our culture. And the second question is, what is an injustice our culture commits? What's an injustice our culture commits? So that survey, although that sounds perhaps a little complicated, was really just asking, what are things that we love more than God? (laughs) And what are ways that we don't love our neighbors? And I'm really looking forward to presenting some of the survey results to the congregation tonight, to you. Uh, But we're going to do that a little bit later. So you kind of have to hold your breath, uh, and we will look at those in a little bit. Because first, I want to talk about Micah 1 and then Micah chapter 2. So in Micah chapter 1, we learned about Israel's idolatry, how Israel just failed to love God first. Now, Israel, the nation of Israel, we kind of think about, about it as kind of one one grouping, one kind of uh, ethnic group of people, but the nation of Israel actually went through a civil war in 930 BC and split into two halves. There were 12 tribes, and they kind of divided themselves up into 10 northern tribes and two southern tribes during the Civil War. So I brought a a map to show you, uh, so you can kind of look at the screen and see northern Israel and southern Judah. So when I say the word Israel, uh, usually I'm referring to just kind of the whole thing, but actually Israel is more of the northern region, and Judah is the southern region after 930 B.C. Now, God judges uh, northern Israel because of their idol worship. They actually make some golden calves that the people begin to worship. And God kind of judges Samaria. You can see from the map that Samaria is like the the central hub. It's the capital of the northern tribes. And in Micah chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, we see the prophet Micah prophesying that Samaria, the capital, will be destroyed. So I wanted to read these verses to you again. This is Micah speaking on behalf of God. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images. 
And that's what happens. In 722 BC, the nation of Assyria comes and destroys Samaria and takes the people into exile. And that northern kingdom really just collapses. Now, in the second part of Micah chapter 1, so we're still kind of looking at a review of last week, the prophet Micah addresses southern Judah and the capital of Jerusalem and says, because you have stopped loving God, you've stopped loving your neighbor, you're also going to go into exile. And we see this in verse 16. He says this, shave your head in mourning for the children in whom you delight. Make yourself as bald as the vulture for they will go from you into exile. Right? So the northern kingdom's gone into exile. And now he's saying the southern kingdom's also going to go into exile. And that's eventually what happens. We see uh, this this chart here, this map, uh, kind of showing when the northern kingdom, 722 B.C., and then uh, the southern kingdom. There were kind of several deportations of the people to Babylon. uh, But really in 586, uh, the, the nation of Babylon destroyed the temple and took the people into exile. But remember, these things haven't happened yet. Actually, uh, we don't think uh, Samaria has fallen yet either. Micah prophesied over a period between 750 and 686 B.C. So he's still warning the people. He's still giving them a chance to repent and to turn from their ways. He's saying, turn to God. Turn from your sins. Love God the most (laughs) and love your neighbor. Stop committing injustices. Now, what did Samaria do? Well, they created these golden calves and and worshipped them, and they did a whole host of other injustices. But tonight we're focusing on Judah's sin, what Judah did wrong. And so I want to show you that first, and there's a place to write in your bulletin. If you want to write the answer down, you can. Uh, But Judah's sin is this, the unjust seizure of the most vulnerable's land and homes. So taking the poor and the weak, taking their, their houses and their property. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. It says this, Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. Now, God is sending the the remaining people, the people in Jerusalem and Judah, that southern kingdom, he's exiling them because of their iniquity. We see that in verse 1, you who plan iniquity. Now, iniquity is not a a word that we use very often in in our culture. Uh, There are different words for kind of sin, transgression, and iniquity in the Bible. Uh, But the, the Hebrew word for iniquity is the word avon. Now, the Bible Project, which we're not going to watch tonight, puts out a great video that you can watch kind of defining these words. Uh, But the word iniquity really means crooked, like crooked, bent behavior, uh, misbehaving. And and kind of the, the aspect is corruption or injustice. And so that's exactly what we are finding in, in verses 1 and 2. The, the people are behaving crookedly, especially those in power and authority. They're lying awake at night, figuring out, devising plans for how they can amass more. And they have to take it from those who have less, from the, the poor, the weak, the vulnerable. 
In fact, verses 8 and 9 tell us that they're willing to take it from men, from women, from children. They're robbing every part of this society. See, what are the rich doing? They're coveting what God has given other people. They're coveting what doesn't belong to them. Maybe you can think of a famous set of commandments in the Bible where God says, thou shalt not covet. (laughs) Well, you're thinking of the Ten Commandments, right? Does anyone know off the top of their head which commandment the, the thou shalt not covet is? I think I saw nine mouths. It's actually the Tenth Commandment. You can remember that because ten often stands for best. What do you want? You want your neighbor's best. You covet your neighbor's best. And God says, thou shalt not covet. Exodus 20, uh, verse 17 says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. The Bible specifically, uh, the Ten Commandments specifically said not to do what they're doing in this passage. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, there's a, there's a tragic story in the Bible that kind of illustrates our passage tonight. It's the story of a Sumerian king, so that northern kingdom, a king named Ahab. And he coveted a vineyard, a vineyard that was near his property. He looked out from his palace and could see this beautiful, gorgeous vineyard. And he went to the owner of that vineyard and offered him money. Now, the owner's name was Naboth. And I'm going to go ahead and read a couple verses from 1 Kings 21. Ahab said to Naboth, Let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. Now, houses and land aren't like what they are today. Like today, although it costs a great deal of money, we can sell and buy houses, sell and buy land with a great deal of ease. Like relatively speaking, it's not that hard to do. But in Israel, in, in this, the kingdom of, of Judah and in, in northern Israel, uh, there was this kind of ancestral claim on the property. And so a piece of land would be in a family for generations, and it would continue to belong to that family, generation after generation. And there was no, like, industrial revolution. Like, you could, couldn't have a nine-to-five job. Uh, in this culture, it was a, an agriculture kind of economy. It was an agrarian society, and that meant that there was farms that they lived off, that they really kind of drew their sustenance, their, their, their livelihood from the property. And so what is Ahab doing? He's saying, well, give me, give me that property that you depend on and that your future family depend on, depends on, and I'm actually going to go and, and, and take someone else's property and give their property to you. And so you can see how, how what Ahab is asking just creates a kind of a, a tumbling effect of injustices as they lose their property, as they lose uh, what kind of gives them sustenance, what sustains them for generations to come. Unfortunately, Ahab is a very evil king and he has a very bad wife. And she says, like, Ahab, Ahab pouts. He's a very, very kingly king. He pouts about it. And his, his wife Jezebel says, well, what's the matter? And he says, well, I want this property. She says, well, don't worry, I'll take care of it. And she hatches a plot to actually have Naboth murdered. 
And he's murdered. He dies, and Ahab gets the property. But God is watching. We believe in a God of justice. <laughs> and so what does God do? He, he actually like, sentences Ahab and his wife Jezebel. They both end up dead. They both die because of this. And, and Ahab, his family, they lose their kingship. Like the, the, the kingship uh, doesn't continue with them. His sons uh, die. And so here, as we go through the scriptures, we ask ourselves, well, has this God changed? <laughs> this was 200 years before the events that we're looking at tonight. That was 900-ish B.C. Now, now we're, we're, we're looking a little bit further along in the story. Has, has the God changed? Has, has the God uh, kind of stopped being just? And the answer is no. Uh, this God is still just, and he's still going to bring about justice. And so if the rich are stealing the land of the poor, they're going to, uh, to meet God's, uh, God's holy answer, God's justice. Now, like Ahab, the rich and the powerful, they're taking advantage of the poor at morning's light. Our passage says in verse 1, they did it at morning's light. Well, that means they were doing it, they were unashamed. <laughs> they were doing it so that others could see. Perhaps they were even doing it legally. That They were going through legal channels to take advantage of those who, who were kind of the most vulnerable to, to, uh, to others taking advantage of them. See, just because something is legal doesn't mean it's right. Just because there's a law that says this is how it is doesn't mean that's how it should be. Now, I've been thinking in this series about justice and examples of justice and injustice that are more uh, current to us in our culture. And I read a book last summer as I was thinking about this series. And it was a book called uh, Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. Maybe some of you have read this. Uh, it's one of the best books I've ever read about justice and defending the most vulnerable and at risk. If you read this, which I do recommend reading it, uh, it will make you furious and hopeful at the same time. Uh, so uh, enjoy that. Brian Stevenson, he founded the Equal Justice Initiative. Uh, he's argued cases before the Supreme Court, and he has this to say about poverty and justice. He says, my work with the poor and the incarcerated has persuaded me that the opposite of poverty is not wealth, the opposite of poverty is justice. Finally, I've come to believe that the true measure of our commitment to justice, the character of our society, our commitment to the rule of law, fairness, and equality cannot be measured by how we treat the rich, the powerful, the privileged, and the respected among us. The true measure of our character is how we treat the poor, the disfavored, the accused, the incarcerated, and the condemned. Uh, if you don't have time to, to read this book, uh, you can go to their website uh, and read stories of just mercy. Uh, you can also watch the Netflix documentary 13th, uh, which is a hard documentary to watch, but well worth it. Uh, and there are interviews with uh, Brian in that. He talks about the American prison system. And actually watching uh, that documentary and reading this book, it actually made me very grateful for recent legislation that our president and Congress passed called the First Step Act, uh, which recently reformed the federal prison system. 
Uh, that's a good thing. Uh, that's a thing that kind of reflects the character of our God. Our God is a God of justice. We should care about these things as Christians. We're not called to hole up in a, uh, in a kind of an enclave away from our culture, but to speak justice and mercy into our society because that reflects who our God is. And so these are some things that I've been learning and am grateful for. God takes very seriously the actions of those who steal from the poor, who take advantage of the needy, yesterday in their society and today in our society. Now, what was God's answer to Judah? What was God's answer for the wrongs that they were committing? Well, God's judgment was that those who steal land would then lose their land. We're looking at verses 3 through 5. Verse 3 says, Therefore, the Lord says, I am planning disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly, for it will be a time of calamity. In that day, the people will ridicule you. They will taunt you with this mournful song. We are utterly ruined. My people's possession is divided up. He takes it from me. He assigns our field to traitors. Therefore, you will have no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by lot. So what's it saying? It's saying that those that committed the injustice of stealing land from others, they will have their land taken away from them in the exile. So we believe in a perfectly fair God. Sometimes we ask ourselves, why isn't God fair? <laughs> well, do you really want God to be fair? Because this is what a fair God looks like. He, he is going to serve justice by taking the property of those who, who took advantage of the poor and needy. Now, I wanted to kind of continue to think through as a congregation what are the similar idols and injustices we see in our culture today. I believe that, uh, that idolatry, not loving God first, actually leads to injustice, to not loving our neighbor in order to truly love our neighbor, we have to love God first. And when we are putting things above God, that's going to lead to a mistreatment of others. And so I want to go ahead and share some of these survey answers from our, our time together last week. Uh, so the first question I asked is, what's an idol our culture worships? Now, I went through the answers, and I tried to summarize them. I might try to share some actual quotes from the answers in the coming weeks. Uh, but here's kind of your answers uh, that you said. What's an idol our culture worships? You said that uh, one, of the, one of the ones that really surprised me that is, seems obvious now is cell phones, like the iPhones, smartphones, technology, uh, social media. Eight people answered that. So that's 26%. Uh, fame, beauty, right? The, 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 the most followers, the, the just being, being famous and successful, we also see kind of success, money, power. Uh, I think this was the, the highest one, 10 answers, so that's 32%. Comfort, that's an idol, right? We just want to be comfortable. We want to be safe. We want to have a great retirement. Uh, individualism and self, there was three answers of that. That was uh, 10%. And then patriotism, uh, there was an answer of making that into an idol, and so this was your answers. This is kind of the things that you together as a church were saying, here are some of the idols that we see in our culture. Here are the ways that we see our world around us not loving God. 
This doesn't mean that we don't commit some of these idols. Like if you were to walk into my office, you would perhaps notice some of the Apple products that are in there. Uh, But we want to make sure that, that we're loving God first, right? That we're not setting up idols, that we're not letting these things control us and take, take over kind of the ultimate say in our lives. Now, what do you think the corresponding injustice, right? There's this theory of, of, of when we worship an idol, it creates kind of an, an injustice. What do you think the corresponding injustice is to like the iPhone or, or cell phones, Uh, I thought about that. Maybe you come up with your own answer as you look for injustices in our society. Uh, But one injustice having to do with this is the increase in teen depression in the U.S. between 2010 and 2015. It corresponds with the rise of smartphones. Did you know that in that time span, in that period, I think 2012 was like the peak year, kind of the peak surge year when more and more teens owned smartphones, that teens uh, reported feeling useless and joyless, which are classic symptoms of depression, it surged 33%. And teen suicide attempts increased 23%, and teens who carried suicide to completion increased 31% between 2010 and 2015. See, more teens are looking at their phones instead of forming face-to-face relationships. And it's actually destroying them as we allow an idol to, to take control of our lives. But this becomes how we function and, and what we actually love and worship and where we find our meeting. It creates destruction. It creates injustice all around us. And so, these are conversations we can have with our families, with our our kids. Yes, those around us, they love their smartphones and they have them, but that doesn't actually bring happiness. It doesn't actually increase the value and the enjoyment of life. And so, we want to address our idols. Now, what about some of the injustices uh, that our culture commits that, that you answered in the survey? Now, this was much harder to classify because, as you can imagine, there's a, there's a variety of thought on, on injustices, but you'll, you'll see there's a lot of overlap. Uh, five, uh, five answered, 17% answered abortion. I, I expected that one as a Christian community that values life among the elderly and the unborn. How about not caring for the poor and needy? 20% answered that. How about just not just not caring, but actual mistreatment of the other? So mistreating the disabled, the weak, and outsiders, 17%. How about racism, bigotry, or prejudice? Bigotry means intolerance of others' opinions. So this is what you answered, 27%. How about profit over people or the national debt, 10%. And not putting Jesus or God first, another 10%. I was really encouraged as I read through both of your surveys. I thought it was very interesting to kind of see what are the idols that we think are in our culture? What are the injustices we see around us? Because I think this survey, it really shows a soft heart in this congregation towards those that are in need, 
towards those that are disadvantaged and vulnerable. And I think that's what we're to have as the people of God, right? If we're not going to make the same mistake as they made in Micah, we need to have a soft heart toward the poor and to the needy. And so let's continue to false foster that. But as a church, we, we may be even called to say to the culture, to our world, hey, these things aren't right. Abortion's not right. Like, we do need to care for the poor and the needy. We need to be mindful and loving towards the outsider, to the foreigner. And how is the culture going to respond? How did, how did, how did uh, Judah respond to Micah when he delivered his message? Well, here's Judah's second sin. They rejected God's message and messenger. They're, they're kind of in the process of rejecting the message. In verses 6 through 7, the false prophets tell Micah, hey, stop prophesying. <laughs> hey, Micah, shut up. <laughs> we don't want to hear it. We don't want to hear what you have to say. What does Micah do? Well, in verse 11, if you look at your, your Bible, he, he insults them. <laughs> He says, if a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, that would be just the prophet for this people. Wow. (laughs) Micah is bold. See, if you want a preacher to tell you what you want to hear, you need someone unlike Micah. If you want someone who who will kind of encourage you and, and say, you know, everything's good, you know, your life is fine how it is, well then, you, you want a prophet like these other prophets during that time, these false prophets. You don't want a prophet like Micah. Now, in our own culture, in our own context, we call a, a pastor or a preacher or a, a prophet who, who kind of emphasizes your best life now, that like God wants you to be kind of wealthy, uh, healthy, and happy, and that's God's primary concern for you and for your life. We call that a prosperity gospel preacher. And at Cornerstone, uh, we say that doesn't reflect the kind of the full picture of the Bible. Now, there's actually elements of it that are true. God does want us to be wealthy, healthy, and happy through Christ Jesus into eternity, But he doesn't guarantee that in this life. In fact, kind of like Jenny's faith story, God often calls us to times of suffering and and times of trial and refinement and putting our faith on Jesus instead of putting our faith on wealth or or the good times or success. And so kind of the the injustice uh, that this is based on is money, right? Uh, it's the, the love of, of what money can buy and kind of the, the life that money can buy. See, my, money can be an idol. Money is not inherently a bad thing, but it can create this desire in us, this coveting that is evil and that leads to wrongdoing. Now, I wanted to share kind of another modern example connected to this because he, he's really talking about prosperity gospel preachers in this passage, in the, in the book of Micah. And so I wanted to share a little clip, uh, well, not a clip, but a, a paragraph from an article in The Atlantic from 2009 uh, that talks about the connection between prosperity gospel preaching churches and the subprime mortgage crisis and how prosperity gospel preaching churches actually made the subprime mortgage crisis worse. 
Now, this is actually a thing, and, and you can look at the article later by going to my sermon. I'll link to it there. Uh, but the Atlantic reported that Wells Fargo specifically targeted churches. The plan was to send officers to guest speak at church-sponsored wealth-building seminars and dazzle the participants with the possibility of a new house. They would tell pastors that for every person who took out a, a mortgage, $350 would be donated to the church or to a charity of the parishioner's choice. They wouldn't say, hey, Mr. Minister, we want to give your people a bunch of subprime loans. A loan officer told me, they would say, your congregants will be homeowners. They will be able to live the American dream. So there's a theory that if you look at where the, the worst parts of the U.S. were hit by the subprime mortgage crisis, they were often in areas, kind of the Sun Belt, where there's a high density of prosperity gospel preaching churches. And that's pretty uh, convicting, right? We're not a prosperity gospel preaching church, but in some ways we're a church and they're a church. We don't want to get caught into this. We've got to recognize that there are real consequences. There are real injustices that were the same in Micah's day that are happening today. And what's God's judgment? God's judgment on them was loss of the temple and exile. The people of Israel believed that because they were the descendants of Jacob, because they had the temple, that God would never leave them. They had kind of this totem, this, this, this religious building, and it showed God's pleasure. And so, so they didn't really need to worry about obeying God. What does verse 10 say to them? Get up, go away, for this is not your resting place, because it is defiled, it is ruined beyond all remedy. This leads to the destruction of the temple and the exile of the people. See, if you claim that you know the real God, and then you preach a gospel that does not reflect the real God... <laughs> God's not going to stick around. God's not going to stay with you. He's going to leave. And so God gives them perfect justice, justice served. But the good thing about our passage, Micah chapter 2, is that God does not end the chapter here. In verses 12 through 13, uh, there's the first glimmers of hope, of hope restored. The Lord will gather his people and lead them home. 12 says, I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. The one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. See, yes, Israel, yes, Judah, you're going to be taken into captivity. You're going to be taken to Babylon. It's going to be like you're in this, this fenced-in pen, this enclave, this actual city of Babylon. It's going to be like you're in prison there, but your king is going to come, and he's going to break you free. He's going to take you out like, like a shepherd leads his flock out into freedom, into green fields. He's going to deliver you and to bring you out of exile. And the cool thing is, is this, this, this shepherd, this king, it actually says the Lord is at their head. This, this word for Lord is Yahweh. That's the name for God. God himself is going to be their king, their shepherd king who's going to come and lead them out of exile. Now, does God do that in the short term? God brings Israel back out of exile, and, uh, and it's in 536 B.C. God brings them back. 
They begin to rebuild the temple. They begin to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. But that's just the short-term fulfillment. The midterm fulfillment is Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I have come to, to rescue my sheep, to rescue my flock. And how does Jesus rescue us from our real captivity? See, the truest captivity is our sin. It's our iniquity. It's our crookedness. And it's not just a, a thing out there. It begins in our hearts and that we need to be rescued from our own sin, our own selves. And Jesus does that by breaking forth from the grave. He dies and then he rises again on the third day so that whoever, whoever says, I'm sinful and I'm broken and I have a, a heart full of iniquity, but I want to believe in Jesus and Jesus, would you forgive me? Jesus forgives them and, and you become one of his sheep and Jesus leaves you, leads you into freedom. That's the gospel. That's the true gospel. That's not, that, that truly is the prosperity gospel. Because it's when you believe that that you can begin to, to truly prosper, to truly live. And the final fulfillment, kind of that end of days fulfillment, is that one day Jesus is going to return. The heavens are going to tear apart. We're going to see Jesus. We're going to see our shepherd king. And he's going to come and lead all of his people, anyone who has ever repented and believed in Christ Jesus, into true and eternal freedom, and life. And so this passage, it's been fulfilled in some ways, but it hasn't been fulfilled in its final way. And so we look forward to, to the Lord gathering his people, to the Lord gathering us and leading us home. I hope that, that if you don't know Jesus, you really will consider, is this a good shepherd that I can trust? Am, am I caught in my exile? Am I caught in my sin? Well, the answer is yes. We all need to be led home by our shepherd king. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus, your son. Thank you for the shepherd king. It's in his name I pray, amen.